you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we'll be reading verses 25 to 32 in the ESV. Now, we are finishing our series in Luke 15 that we've been calling Lost and Found. This is our sixth week on just this single chapter. Uh, And some of you are saying, oh man, I wish you could go longer. And some of you are praising God that uh, we can move on past this verse, uh, past this chapter. Um, I just want to let you know where we're going to be going uh, after we finish today. Next week, we have our congregational um, retreat, and so we'll get the privilege of hearing um, Pastor Paul John preach. And then the following week, when we come back, we will be starting, and don't get too excited about this, so uh, we'll be starting a series um, it's, it's short. We're only going to look at the first three chapters of Revelation. Uh, now, that because if you know, in chapters 2 and 3, there are the seven letters to the churches in Asia. Uh, so when I say Revelation, people are thinking, he's, he's going to talk about the, 140, the 144,000. He's going to talk. No, I'm just going to stop at chapter 3. Uh, so we're going to spend about uh, nine weeks in Revelation chapter 1 to 3, considering what Jesus has to speak to the churches. So that's where we're headed. After that, we'll go to the book of Daniel, and we'll not cover the whole book of Daniel, but we'll do six chapters of Daniel, and that will lead us into the new year. So with that said, let's hear now the reading of God's holy word from Luke chapter 15, verses 25 and following. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, that is the servant, said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you, have never, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, give to us a heart that is hungry to receive, thirsty and ready to drink from the water of your word. I pray, God, that you would give to us ears that long to hear the voice of the Father, a mind that desires to be filled with thoughts of Christ and a life that yearns to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, Father, in this hour, as we now consider for the last time this section of the parable of the prodigal son, teach us, instruct us, but let it never be a mind exercise only. Let it not even be a heart exercise but that as you preach to us through your word, that it would hit our minds, it would move our hearts, and it would activate our hands so that we would serve you, love you, pursue you, and know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Now, we've spent four weeks, this is our fourth week in this last parable of the prodigal son. And so here's one question. If you're going to take anything away from this parable, what is it that you'll take away? And what I hope it is, is that this parable is not about a younger son, nor is it even about an elder brother. That its primary focus is about the love and sacrifice of a father. It's about a father who endures shame and heartache for the sake of his beloved lost sons. Did you hear that? His beloved lost sons. That's right. Both of his sons are lost. You see, the first son, the younger son, was lost by his immorality and his bad works. But what we'll soon see is that this elder son is also lost. In fact, you could even say that he's more lost than the younger brother. Now, remember, when Jesus is teaching this parable, he is speaking primarily to the Pharisees and the scribes. And so his intention is not to end the parable with a warm and uh, sweet celebratory homecoming about the younger son. Actually, when Jesus gives this parable, he leaves it open-ended. He ends the parable abruptly. Why? Because he wants us to be uncomfortable. Jesus ends the parable without a real ending. He leaves it wide open, uncertain. Did the brother go into the party or not? And we're left wondering. And Jesus does this as if to say to the Pharisees that he's preaching to, the move is yours. You self-righteous elder brother type who refused to join in the celebration of the younger brothers, the prodigal sons coming home, it's your move. What are you going to do? Are you going to stay outside of the party or are you going to come in? Tim Keller says about this parable that it's not so much about wonderful assurance given, but that it is an absolute in-your-teeth warning to good people. So as we look at this parable particularly verses 25 to 32, I want to consider this gospel truth with you. Even your good works can keep you on the outside of God's kingdom feast. Even your good works can keep you on the outside of God's kingdom feast. We know what your bad works certainly can, but even your good works. And so as we look at this passage and we look at this gospel truth, I want to consider four things with you. The climax of the story, the center of the son's obedience, the consequences of self-righteousness, and the cost of the sacrifice. So if you're following with me, let's first consider the climax of the story. The climax of the parable, many people are confused about it. They think it's that when the prodigal son returns home. But that's not actually the climax. That's still leading and moving along with the drama to a greater climax. And that's this confrontation between the father and the eldest son. So the older son, he is out in the fields, he is working hard and diligently. He comes home, he hears all this music, he hears all this dancing, so he pulls a servant aside and asks him what this is about. The servant answers in verse 27, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So why is there a celebration in the home? Is it because the prodigal has returned home? No. Not really. Read it carefully. The party, the fattened calf, was not because the younger son came home. He was slaughtered and there was a party because it says here, 
the Father received him. The celebration isn't about the son coming home. The celebration is in the father's love and graciousness and receiving and restoring the son back. So now we're almost at the climax of the story where all of the drama is leading. The elder brother, he hears that his younger brother has returned home. So the question now is, what will he do? And verse 28 comes as a surprise. But he was angry and refused to go in. The brother is furious. He doesn't rejoice in the good news. He doesn't, listen, he doesn't hear your brother has come home. If he heard that, he would be rejoicing. He would be celebrating. But he's angry. Why? Because what does he focus on? Your father has killed the fattened calf. He's listening to the wrong part of what the servant is saying. Selective hearing. Some of the kids in here, you know exactly what that's like. Maybe some of you adults, you had parents like this yourself. You bring home a report card, six A's, one A minus. You happily show it to your parents, and all they can focus on is that one A minus. You bring home 98%. Every other kid failed. They'll ask what happened to that last 2%. And you're thinking, you're focusing on the wrong things. The servant says, your brother has come. And as a result, the father, in receiving him, is killed the calf and the brother says what the calf it's the calf that he always wanted and like a pouting child like a kid who isn't getting his way he stays outside and he huffs and puffs until he gets his way but his refusal to enter the party is more than just a temper tantrum it's actually more serious than we realize it has great ramifications now, we've talked about this a lot, and I introduced the parables of, in Luke 15 in this way, that it's set in a Middle Eastern context, which means that there's a historical and there's a cultural distance. So sometimes we need to get inside their shoes, to get inside their world. Now, here's what you need to know. In the Bible, in the time of the Bible, when a Jewish nobleman threw a feast, he would invite all of his guests, and then the eldest son would play the role of a head servant. You see, he would do this as a way for the father to honor his guest. He would gather all of his guests, and then he would tell his eldest son, now you serve them. And by doing that, he was saying to the guest, I am honoring you. You are my honored guest. Look, even my eldest son is serving you. The closest we would get to this is when you have company over, and you yell at your kids, stop playing the games and come down. And they come down, and you say, now say hi. And they say hi, and they leave. And you say, oh, we're honoring you. In the ancient culture, the eldest son would serve the guests. So the father would honor the guests, and then the son would honor the father by obliging their request and fulfilling his duty. So when the son refuses to enter the feast, he is breaking tradition. Because the guests would be sitting there and they'd be wondering, well, where's the eldest son? And as a result, as the oldest son refuses to enter into the party, he is bringing shame upon the father in two ways. First, in his refusal to come in, he fails to honor his father. Everyone would be at that feast murmuring, this man didn't raise his children right. What a failed parent. The first one ran away. The second one doesn't even come into the party. He doesn't serve us. So that's the first source of shame. The second, he's bringing shame upon the father because now they're looking at the father. He's not only a failed parent, but he's a failed host. This man, he's not even hosting us. He's not even receiving us correctly. So you can imagine all the eyes are on the father. What is he going to do? Everyone knows the son is on the outside. 
what will he do? Now, one question that I kept asking is, how much shame can this man endure? This father, how much shame can he endure? He already bore shame when his son basically said, I wish you were dead, took his money and ran away. Then he bore shame again when his son decided to come home and he ran like an undignified child to welcome him. Then he bore shame again when he received his son and he didn't demand collection of debt. He didn't demand repayment, but he restored him freely. How much more shame can this father take? How deep does his love run? What are the limits of his patience and his grace? So the Pharisees are listening to Jesus. What's going to happen next? What will the father do? And Jesus continues in verse 28. His father came out and entreated him. Now, I don't know why the ESV chose to translate this and treated him. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, is a more literal translation than even the ESV. And the NASB translates it, and his father came out and began pleading with him. This father now bears the shame of both his son's disobedience. And for the second time, he bears the shame by coming out and not rebuking his son, not kicking his son out as he has every right to do, but this father is pleading with his son to come back in. Here's the point. The father is willing to go the distance, whatever the distance that's necessary, in order to seek and to find his children. Whatever that distance is, however much shame that is, however many times he has to do, he is willing to go the distance to bring his children back. And what the readers or the original audience wouldn't have understood, what they would be missing out on, is that Jesus is actually describing a humility that he himself will exhibit and a humiliation he himself would endure. Isn't this exactly what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2 when he talked about Jesus and said, He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then Paul adds this phrase. So Jesus showed absolute humility in coming and taking on the form of man and dying. But then Paul adds, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why does he mention that? Because it wasn't just humility. It was humiliation. The cross, the Roman cross, crucifixion, the Roman way, was the most humiliating way that any man could die. Jesus himself, through the Father, is showing that he's not only willing to exhibit a humility, but to endure a humiliation to get sinners. The Father sunk low for one son already. He's willing to do it all over again for another son. This is unrelenting, unending, persevering love. This is what we see in the gospel. This is what was done for you. And so we see the climax of this story. But in the midst of it, we also see this, the second point, the center of the son's obedience. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, there are two key words that reveal how this son really understood his relationship with his father. They are these words. I have served you, and secondly, I have never disobeyed you. Never disobeyed means I always obeyed. 
So the way the, the way the son understands his relationship to the father is in two, summed up in two words. Serve and obey. Now, some of you dads are like, well, that's the way it should be. But no, 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 that's a huge problem. You see, while the younger son took the money and went away, he was squandering in uh, reckless living. This older brother, he was home, the faithful son. And so for all intents and purposes, he's not lost. He's found. He's in the home. But even in the house, even in proximity with his father, he is no closer to his dad than his younger brother was. You see, because a true relationship with the father is one that's not based on obedience and service, but based on intimacy and love. What characterizes your relationship with God the Father? Duty? Obligation? Or embrace and kisses? Now, let's go back and just kind of summarize where we've been. The younger son rejects his father. He runs away. When he realizes that he can't save himself through any of his self-salvation projects, he decides, I'm going to go home. But when he goes home, he doesn't come in true repentance. He comes in rehearsed repentance. Because he says, okay, I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I committed sin against heaven before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then remember this key phrase? Treat me, or hire, treat me as one of your hired servants. Basically, I don't want to be related to you on sonship. I want to be related to you on servitude. Why? Because I want to earn my way back. So he rehearsed that. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he comes up home, and he sees his dad running after him. His dad embracing him. His dad kissing him. And all, all of a sudden, in that moment, he realizes, man, my dad loves me. This is grace. So he says what? I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that one phrase, treat me as your hired servants, that he had been repeating over and over again, he drops it. Why? Because he realizes that my relationship with my dad isn't about my service. It's not about my obedience. It's not about my duty. It's about intimacy. It's about receiving his love. The father doesn't want my service. The father just wants his son back. So the younger son understood that. So he was lost and now he's found. But this older son who's in the house, who's faithful, when he starts to object to his father, what are the two things he draws his attention to? Service and obedience. He is in the house, but he does not understand how the father operates. The elder son is lost too. He's lost because like the younger son, he's basing his relationship to his father on his works, on all the wrong things. He thinks that his relationship with the father has to do with what he can do for the father, not what the father does for him. And so he accuses the father. I deserve this party. Look at all I did. I deserve this celebration. Look at all I did. I deserve, maybe not the fan cap, I at least deserve a goat to celebrate with all my friends. I've been obedient for all of these years. And when he says this, it reveals that he didn't stay home with his dad because he loved his father, because he enjoyed a relationship with the father. No, no, no. He stayed at home because he thought through my good works, I can earn, I can demand something from my father. So then when he sees his younger brother return home, squander all the money, live a life of sin, but then his father has a whole feast and slaughters a fattened fattened calf, he is white hot with rage. And this is very important. Look at verse 30. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now notice how he talks about his own brother. He doesn't say, now, when my brother who has devoured, he says, now, when this son of yours, and that's in direct contrast because in verse 7, the servant said, your brother has come. And then right after, in verse 32, the father says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother. But he's saying, no, he's not my brother. He's dead to me. He's dead to me. This son of yours, look. He doesn't say father. He says, look, this son of yours, he's dead to me. Now, the basic logic of his complaint is this. I stayed home. I obeyed you, and I didn't get anything. He left. He disobeyed, and he received everything. Help me work that out here. If he left and he received everything, I stayed and I received nothing, then why the heck did I stay? I should have left so that I could get everything by my leaving. I should have left a long time ago. He's frustrated that his father's parenting is operating by grace and not by performance. And in that moment, he realizes that grace renders all of his good works, all of his obedience, worthless. He realizes that all the good works, everything I've done that I've collected and amassed, I can't earn anything with them. You may have remembered this, but last year on November 8th, the... um, Government of India, the prime minister announced uh, the demonetization of all 500,000 rupee banknotes. So rupee is, is, uh, is, is, is the money, the currency in India. And basically what they were doing is they were trying to crack down on, um, on those who had uh, uh, illegally counterfeit money and all this. And so they're, they're basically saying all 500,000 rupee, which are the highest, two highest denominations, that that would be discontinued after two months. And so people started flooding to the banks. Why? Because when you go to the banks and you turn in your money, they would scan it to see if it was real, and then the money would get deposited, and then they would start all over again. Um, so people flooded the banks, and for two months, it was, the deadline was about two months later. And after the two months and they did all the research, they estimated that about 95% of all the bills that were out in circulation, that 97% of that uh, was returned back to the banks, was deposited in the banks. But think about that. 97%, that means 3% of the bills out there, legitimate currency, 3% of the bills out there have no more value, that you can't use that, that if you miss the deadline... You just have a piece of paper. You don't have money. And I was thinking about that. How furious would you be? Let's say you, you, were, you were in India. You were, you were working hard your whole life, and you got paid in cash. Uh, and instead of spending the money on the comforts and luxuries of the world, you kept it safe in your home. You're saving up, saving up, maybe for your kid's tuition. You're saving up money. And then imagine for some extenuating circumstance, you have to leave the country. And you are gone for three months. So when you return back to India... You open your safe, you go to spend it, and you're told that your hard-earned money now is valueless. That you had a whole lifetime of earned and saved money that now means absolutely nothing. It would be a little hard to smile. It would be hard to move on. This is exactly what the older brother felt like in that moment when he heard that this reckless, prodigal, dead-to-him brother was received back with a robe and a ring and a party thrown for him because that meant for him, what am I going to do with all my good works? They mean nothing. 
because my dad operates on the principle of grace. All of his morality, all of his self-righteousness, all of his good works, all of his obedience, all of his faithfulness, it disappeared. And so in this flash of unchecked anger, it's exposed that at the center of his obedience all along was his desire to get something for himself. The older brother is no different than the younger brother. They both wanted the things of the father. They didn't want the father. And the only difference was that the younger son ran away in order to pursue those things, and the, younger, or the older brother stayed home to secure those things. Same goal, the things, different strategy. Now, it makes me think some of you in here may have lived the prodigal son's lifestyle, and by grace you came home. By grace, marvelous grace, you came home. But being home for a little while, you may be starting to slip into an elder son mentality. It's obviously not an intentional change. It's just a slow drift. Like when you're driving late at night and you start nodding off and your car starts dangerously changing lanes. That you were drifting into an elder son way of thinking. Now, probably, most likely, many more of you have been in church your whole life. So you're not a younger son who's become an elder son. You've just been an elder son your whole life. You've never left the house. You've never left the church. You've always been faithful, but you are equally self-righteous, and so you are equally lost. You say you love the grace of God, but in your heart you cherish and you celebrate your own goodness and your own accomplishments and your own righteousness. And you probably realize by now that in your Christian life, you can be so religious, you can be so faithful to attending church, you can be so diligent in all of your spiritual duties, and yet you could still be far away from God. You could still feel the distance. But do you realize that it's because it's not only sin and screw-ups that are an obstacle to knowing God. Your own goodness is an obstacle. Some of you, it's your own... Decency is an obstacle. Your own respectability, these are the things that are keeping you away from God. You're lost in your own good works. You see, this parable is ultimately, it's not a warning to the unworthy. It's an invitation to the unworthy. This parable is a warning to those who think they are worthy, to those who use their righteousness use their spirituality as a way to either avoid God, I'm spiritual, I'm good, I don't need you, or as a way to control God, I'm good, so you have to do what I say. Just because you're not lost like the younger brother does not mean you are found. Let me say that again. Just because you are not lost like the younger brother does not mean you are found. What is at the center of all that you do for God? Now, third There are consequences of self-righteousness. This elder brother is self-righteous. And we see three things, at least three things. There are more. I chose to focus on three things that are the consequence. First, self-righteousness blinds you to the beauty of grace. If you're self-righteous, you cannot see grace for whatever it's worth. It's like a colorblind person looking at something Green and red. They know there's a different shade, but you cannot see what it is. Look at verse 31. The father responds to his son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He's saying, you have access to everything because you're my son. 
Why would you need to work hard to get a goat for your friends? You're a son, not a servant. You can have the goat any time. Everything that's mine is yours. That's grace. But the elder son's insistence on his own righteousness blinds him to it. He doesn't see that everything in his father's house is his by grace. Instead, when he looks around the father's house, all he sees are dollar signs. The father has stamped free, but all he sees are dollar signs. And he thinks that I need to earn these things. And so maybe in your own self-righteousness, you are being blinded to God's grace. God has offered to you, in Ephesians 1, it says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But do you see dollar signs where God has said, free? And we do this, for example, when we try to make ourselves lovable to God. When we try to make ourselves lovable to God, we are blind to the fact that he cannot love you more today than he did yesterday or will tomorrow. He loves you freely. When you insist on earning forgiveness from God, you are blind to the fact that you cannot be forgiven more now than you will be on the final day. When you insist, insist on achieving applause from God, you are blind to the fact that in Jesus Christ, the Father sings songs of delights over you. You work for that which you already have, and you are blinded to the grace that he offers freely. Second, self-righteousness prevents you from being gracious. It not only blinds you from seeing God's grace, it prevents you from being gracious. Because although there's a party with music, dancing, and good food, I talked about this last week, the fattened calf, massage, grain-fed, organic, you know, uh, free-range, Kobe beef, he refuses to go in. Verse 28 tells us why. Or verse 28 says he refused to go in. Now, his brother who was dead is alive. His brother who was lost is now found. Yet he's so offended by his, that the fact that the father works on grace that he hasn't seen this, his brother in so long. Even if you were angry, wouldn't you at least want to take a peek? Did he change? Did he gain some weight? Is he taller than me? <laughs> but he is so angry. There's not a single gracious bone in his body. And so he cannot enter the joy of the homecoming. Listen, when you don't have a sense of your own need for grace, if you don't believe you need grace, you will never ask God for grace. If you never ask God for grace, you will never have grace to give to another person. Do you understand that? Instead, all you'll have is a critical heart, an unkind heart, a judgmental heart toward others because they don't operate to your level of performance or to your standard. You will be divisive instead of unifying. You will be exclusive instead of inclusive. You will be stingy instead of generous. Why? Because the barrel of your heart is empty. You've never asked God to fill your heart with grace, so you have nothing to give. And so when you do want to give to somebody else, there's no overflow of encouragement and patience and, and compassion, but you are trying to scrape at the very end, very bottom of the barrel. Some of you, when you cook rice for people and you run out and you don't have enough, you start scraping at the bottom of that rice pot and all it is is just, you know, just the things you don't want to eat. It's hard as potato chips. And so some of you, you have no grace in your heart, and so you're trying to scrape whatever's there, but all that's there is disapproval and discouraging words and a condescending attitude. Why? Because you have not been filled with God's grace. Why? Because you never asked, because you never thought you needed God's grace. 
Are you so self-righteous that you do not know how to be gracious? What do people think of you? If someone said, if I said, if I talked to some people who knew you and I said, you know, and I dropped your name, would they go, yeah, that, that person's full of grace. They are gentle. They are understanding. And would they say, yeah, I know that guy. Self-righteous, judgmental, harsh, critical. Which is it? And third, third consequence, self-righteousness keeps you on the outside. The party is happening on the inside, but the brother is on the outside. Now look at verse 33. For all of you look, you're confused. There is no verse 33. Because as far as we know, the brother never went in. He's still on the outside. 2,000 years later, he's still on the outside. And he has no regrets. Why do you think that is? You see, the son, because of his insistence on self-righteousness, says it's principle. On principle, I did all this work. How can I accept grace? But it's not principle that keeps him on the outside. It's pride. Now, some of you here have helped out with Manna on Main Street. If you don't know what Manna on Main Street is, it's, it's where meals are distributed to those in the Lansdale community. It's, uh, it's for free. You're feeding the hungry. Now, let's say that you're serving at Manna on Main on one of these Saturdays, and there's a man who walks in. It looks like he hasn't eaten for days. He is, he is hungry, and um, he tries to give you money for a plate of food. And you put, politely respond, no, no need for that, sir. You know, all meals here are free. And the man begins to get angry, and he says to you, I'm not here to, re- I'm not here to receive charity. I'm not a poor beggar. I'll take my money so I can eat this food. And you say, sorry, this is the policy. We're not selling food. We're giving it away. The only condition for you to eat is to receive it freely. So imagine that man walks away with the money in his hand, but no food in his stomach. What will have kept that man from being fed? Was it his principles? It was his pride. So also our insistence that God receives our good works, our refusal to accept things freely from his hand is what may keep you on the outside of God's feast, on the outside of God's joy, which may be the reason that you have such little joy in your own life. Friends, let me tell you, it's better on the inside than it is on the outside. It's better to receive in abundance freely than it is to earn the right to nothing. And last, the cost of the sacrifice. In verse 12, remember that when the younger son asked for his inheritance and he left, the father gave him one-third of the property. In the Old Testament time, the oldest son got two-thirds and the younger son got one-third. And so two sons here. The younger son asked for his money. The father truly did give him one-third, which meant that the two-thirds that was left, all of that belonged to who? The elder son. Right? He would receive the remaining inheritance when his father passed away. So maybe, I'm just speculating here, maybe that's why the elder brother never tried to stop his brother. Maybe he thought, good, now everything is mine. Maybe. He's selfish, so we at least, if we don't see it there, at least certainly in this story... Because he comes home, he hears his brother's backs, but he's fixated on just one thing. It's this fattened calf. He loved this fattened calf. 
Now, remember, this was a prized and precious animal. It would have been worth a lot of money. And so he comes home. He smells the aroma of cooked meat. He hears the melody of hired musicians. He hears the thump of dancers dancing in joy. And all that he can think about is how much this costs. Why? Because if his father throws a party, all the money that the father's using to throw the party, whose money will that eventually be? It'll be his. So whenever the father spends money, all the elder brother sees is his bank account getting smaller and smaller. He's counting pennies and nickels. So when his brother returns, it's not good news for him. You see, because his father restored the younger son, and he, hired him, he brought him back not as a hired servant, but as an honored son, this means now that they're going to have to spend money on him. So he doesn't see his, the return of his brother as a happy moment. He just thinks hemorrhaging money. You just think, oh, it's just more money that is leaving what belongs to me. So he sees, maybe he sees his brother in a robe. That, that's, a, that's my robe. He sees his brother in a ring. That's my ring. He sees sandals. Those are my sandals. You see, when the younger son was restored, it was with a cost. It was a great cost. It was a cost to the elder brother. And he's unwilling to make the sacrifice, which is why he's so angry. From the very beginning, he let his brother go without trying to stop him. And at the end, he doesn't welcome his brother back. So there's a glaring lack of inaction from the beginning, a glaring presence of unwillingness at the end. And I think about the prodigal son, and I pity him. I have compassion on him. I feel for him. Not because he squandered away his wealth, not because he was home for such a long time, not because he had to sink so low because he was in a pig pen. I pity him because he did not have a true elder brother. But praise be to God that we have one. See, you and I were restored to the Father because we have an elder brother who took every action necessary to initiate coming after you and demonstrating a resolute willingness to bring you and me back home. You see, because the true missing brother, the true elder brother who's missing in this story, is again the one telling the story. Jesus is the true elder brother. Now think about this with me. How did the elder brother in the story fail his duties? His brother returns, he rejects him. There's a feast going on, he refuses to eat with him. Now, what should a true elder brother have done? Not reject him, receive him. Not refuse to eat with him, eat with him. Now, think about that with me. He should have, the true elder brother should have not refused him, but received him. Not stayed away, but eaten with him. Now, if you remember those two things, think about this. Why was Jesus teaching this parable in the very first place? What was the occasion? You have to look back to chapter 1 and 2. Or verses 1 and 2. And in verse 2, this is what it says. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man does what? Receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus is telling us he's the true elder brother that all of us need. The brother in the story, he did what? He didn't receive sinners. He didn't eat with them. What does the true elder brother do? Those exact things. You see, unlike the elder brother, Jesus didn't complain that a prized, fattened calf was killed on behalf of another. In fact, Jesus was willing to lay down his own precious life on behalf of another. 
Unlike the elder brother, Jesus didn't leave the party because we were on the inside. Jesus was kicked to the outside so that we can be brought into the inside. Unlike the elder brother, Jesus didn't argue with his father saying, Father, I did all of this work. How can you honor him and not me? Jesus pleaded with the father, Father, I did all of the perfect work, so honor them. And I will take the dishonor. He is the brother that all of us needed. Now, Edmund Clowney, he was the professor, uh, first president at Westminster Seminary, preached a sermon on this, and he tells a story that was in Life magazine about Lieutenant Daniel Dawson. Lieutenant Daniel Dawson flew a reconnaissance plane uh, during the time of the Vietnam War, and that plane was shot down. It disappeared. And so his family received no word of him, and in their angst, his elder brother, Donald, took it upon himself to go to Vietnam. And he sold all that he had. This is crazy. He sold all he had. He left his wife $20, and he made his way to Vietnam. Donald risked his life looking for his brother, searching the jungles, going out into the battlefield for him. He was carrying a picture of the plane in order to find any information on his lost brother that he could. He was in Vietnam searching for nine months. Four of those months, he was in a Viet Cong prison. And he became affectionately known by the people as the brother. Now, unfortunately, the reason he returned back is because he found out that his brother, in fact, had died. And so he returned. But friends, you and I have an elder brother who gave up all that he had who came to a strange and distant land in order to find us. And when receiving you into his family meant that he had to pay a great cost, he was willing to give it all up. He didn't even keep $20. He wasn't imprisoned in a cell. He was crucified on a cross. And this is the work that he was willing to do for you. So he says to you, come and clean up. He doesn't say, clean up, then come. So we don't trust in our own good works, but in his alone. He gets you on the inside. And the inside is a great place to be. Now, as I close here, let me just give you my summary of this entire parable. Some of you are going, well, couldn't you just done that at the beginning and would have been shorter. Let me give you my summary of this parable. The prodigal son teaches you that there is no amount of bad works you can do that will disqualify you from the joy of restoration. There is no amount of bad works you can do that will disqualify you from the joy of restoration. The elder brother, the elder brother teaches you there is no amount of good work you can do that will qualify you for the joy of sonship. You can try as hard as you want. There is no amount of good work that will qualify you for the joy of sonship. And the Father teaches you that it's only God's work through Jesus Christ that you who were lost can be found and you who were dead can be made alive. Nobody in here has to be on the outside. If you're a prodigal lost in sin, come home into the Father's embrace If you are a Pharisee lost in your own good works, come into the Father's feast so that all of us who were once lost may be found. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your word and its depth and its complexity. But we also thank you for your word and its simplicity. The simple call is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe and trust in his work. Stop relying on yourself and you will be saved. At the same time, we thank you that it's not as simple as come. Come without money. Come without paying. Yes, we receive freely, but only because a fee was paid. A sacrifice was made. A debt was owed, and Jesus Christ, by living the perfect life and dying the perfect death, took care of it for us. Father, some of us in here are lost because we are running away. Call us back and bring us back. But Father, we also pray for those who are lost, who are still in your house, who are trying to control you through their good works. Pray, Father, that for us, you would show us the futility of our good works, show us the sufficiency of Jesus's, and that elder brother types and younger brother types celebrate together in the feast of God's grace, where you welcome all of us, you give to us a seat at your table. And you call us daughter and son. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now may the grace and Savior, the grace and favor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the true elder brother who came and gave it all up for us, and the love of God the Father Almighty who welcomes sinners, and self-righteous people into his home. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who draws us near, works in our hearts repentance, opens our eyes to see grace, fills us to be gracious, and leads us to the inside. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forever. Amen.